Hi and welcome to Mumble Mumble the Harry Potter podcast. I am Prashanthini and I am Aishwarya. Today we are doing something different. This is a season 3 wrap up episode and we are going to be discussing Prisoner of Azkaban the book and the movie. We are going to be talking about the broad themes about time travel and obviously about how much Aishwarya hates Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. Yes, my moment is finally here. <laughs> Joining us for this discussion is a special guest Vignesh Vijay Kumar aka Body. Say hi Body. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Body but my real name is Vignesh so uh, don't get confused if people refer to me as Body throughout the rest of this podcast. That's going to happen for sure. For sure. Uh Body back when we recorded season 1 Aishwarya and I decided that if we survive until season 3 we'll have you as a guest on our episode. This is because you have a very special connection to Prisoner of Azkaban the book. Tell us the story. My introduction to the Harry Potter world came in the year 2000. So my uncle uh, bought me the first book. And at that time, I think the first three books had been released. So he was actually on book 3. This was during my summer vacation. So around June of 2000. I started reading the first book. and trust me the first chapter was the most boring chapter i've ever read in my life about anything because the the book goes out of its way to describe how the dursleys are the most boring family on earth the only thing that caught my attention there was young serious black and a flying motorcycle i didn't even know what that was it was probably the coolest bit a flying motorcycle was the highlight of the first chapter of harry potter i completely stopped reading the book it didn't excite me to read beyond the first chapter so i just left it like that and i forgot about it the entire uh, summer vacation passed and my uncle had almost finished reading the third book i just looked at the back cover of the third book to understand what this book is about and i read serious black's name again so i knew that there is something about this guy and the back jacket of uh, book 3 actually made the story interesting and for some reason i happened to read the chapter names of the first and the last chapter of book 3 also so it said owl post and owl post again so for me it seemed like some you know long term narrative and so it really got my attention and that's how i started reading the first book in the first place so if not for book 3 uh, i would have not been a harry potter fan i actually assumed that you read book 3 first so did i i mean i read like the back cover of book 3 and i read like the chapter names of book 3 i didn't read book 3 first but i'm very surprised that just to throw away name called serious black captured your attention so well it was the flying motorcycle how disappointed were you when you found out that the flying motorcycle doesn't come in the first three books it came in the first book right so like hagrid yeah. still uses it Briefly. still like the hut on the rock and all that but after that it just like died and it was like a non character so mm. yeah that was pretty disappointing But then there are flying broomsticks. Motorcycles versus broomsticks. <laughs> What's cooler? Broomsticks. What can you climb on top of at your house and pretend yes. it flies? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'm not willing to try it on a broomstick. I posted on Facebook some years ago about this and my friend pointed this out. One, I don't know how to drive properly. Two, I'm scared of heights. So for someone who can't drive and someone who's scared of heights how can a flying motorcycle be uh, attractive in the first place it's the ultimate dream but i think book 3 has been the turning point for a lot of people believe it or not i've heard similar stories from some of my friends that they thought the first two books were quite boring actually some of the people i know started reading at book 3 so i think it's definitely a turning point book 
and we definitely get a different flavor of all the characters that we have been introduced to and uh, a different kind of plot jk rowling also introduces and it makes it like really exciting and for once we don't have the usual voldemort climax the third movie is also my favorite movie so i think the whole package is like really attractive for me of all the movies i think i didn't like the third one uh, at all every other movie i think had like pieces that i could like i think the first movie is still my favorite movie because it was uh, a magical representation of what was only in our imagination so the first movie is always going to be special of the rest of the seven movies if i were to rank them movie 3 would be the last for me for various things that they cut out from the movie so it's interesting to note that the titles of the seven books only two of them are characters everything is harry potter and an object harry potter and a place only the third and the sixth books actually refer to people in the series which is sirius and snape that is also partly the reason uh, why they are the pivotal characters in the whole book and there is a lot of themes associated with them they are like almost mirror images of each other a good versus evil but yin versus yang where like the good guy is also the bad guy the bad guy is also the good guy and all that partly the reason why i think sirius and snape are like the two best characters of the series is because jk rowling invested so much time in the character development of the two and they deserve the title credits so to speak it's a very astute observation i never realized that but you are right i think the reason we know those two characters so well is because of the amount of time she's dedicated to them speaking of time i know we covered time travel quite a bit in our last episode but seeing as we have a guest i figured we would stir up the subject again because to talk about prisoner of azkaban the book is to talk about time travel so body do you want to go first sure 2001 was when i read the third book the year where a lot of time travel related pop fiction just happened to come by me 2001 was when i saw dragon ball z for the first time and uh, there is a character called future trunks like his <laughs> name was future trunks because he is from the future there was a movie series that i watched back to the future so it's a trilogy from then onwards i think time travel has always been like a point of fascination for me today if you ask me what is one of my lifelong dreams is to meet another self of myself from either the past or the future like i'm always on the lookout for a alternate version of me from some other time so you won't attack your another self because you're expecting it completely i've never understood that rule of not supposed to be seen by yourself how would that lead to anything consequential because you already know that time travel exists you are the one traveling and it's not that you're doing it for the first time you're not going back in time where you didn't know the concept existed you are going back in time at a point where the past self also knows that time travel exists also knows that the future self is capable of time travel so what's wrong with that that's just one possibility what if you go back in time to a past self which doesn't know the time travel exists fair enough even then i think just because it's set in the harry potter universe where we have dark magic and dark wizards and people out to get harry potter it becomes a lot more serious if you come across someone who's like exactly like you so it could be anyone who's impersonating you but for us it's not going to be uh, that dangerous so what did you think about uh, time travel in harry potter specifically because for both aishwarya and i 
this was our first exposure to time travel itself so in spite of some of the flaws that we discussed in the last episode we do think that we quite like the time travel in this book because it introduced the whole concept to us so but as someone who has been introduced to that before what did you think of it the one thing that really stood out to me was that uh, you can't really change the timeline so that is something i think is unique to the laws of time travel with respect to harry potter and we've only seen one narration of it the original timeline in which say before uh, hermione and harry travel back in time actually does not lead to the deaths of buckbeak and sirius that's what the premise of the book is we see the events unfold from their point of view but from a dumbledore's point of view nothing happened like they didn't move at all i want to know what happened in that from that lens we see the other way around right like the the harry who is unable to perform the patronus charm actually sees a stag in front of him yeah so that's the point of view of the larger storyline that is missing that i'm more interested in seeing we never get to hear uh, walden mcnair like you know he is trying to uh, chop off uh, buckbeak's head right but there is no buckbeak there so the we see it as a result of all this but even before all this happened it actually did happen that way mm. so that's a interesting piece it's just outside of comprehension for me i think if it had been a part of a later book maybe fifth or sixth book jk rowling would have actually elaborated on it a little bit because if you see the last chapter in this book i think there was scope for some kind of explanation of what it was like for a third person for example hagrid or someone completely underrated like percy to talk about what went on like what are the sequence of events that happened but in spite of moving towards a slightly adult or young adult territory this is strongly a children's book so ending was too much of a let's tie all the knots neatly rather than you know explain these things the one thing that is missing is this so if i look back at all the points of time travel related fiction that i enjoyed seeing the altered timeline play but seeing it from the unaltered timelines point of view for example you are only aware or privy to one narration or timeline of events but we know that there are two timelines there there is a pseudo two timeline there and from the non altered piece like the original timeline everything else is completely new we don't see it from their perspective in back to the future 2 if you've seen the movie I think I have but I don't remember it very well. Like the whole Back to the Future 2 movie is so much fun because the the climax of Back to the Future 2 and the climax of Back to the Future 1 are the exact same movie told from different perspectives. Oh that's interesting. That is very cool. You should watch both. Okay. And even with Avengers for that matter I was very disappointed what would have made an amazing moment for me in the Avengers movie is if in Endgame when they go back to the 2012 timeline tony and cap will tell yeah. hulk you know you know go act like a hulk or something like that so he'll go randomly bash two cars and all that right that is happening at the same time as the original uh, avengers fight what would have made an amazing moment is if this hulk mm. went there and pretended to be the 2012 hulk saying that's my secret i'm always angry because from that timeline like we don't know that hulk has already mastered how to turn into hulk but we know in end game he has so if this hulk was that hulk that will be like a mind blowing moment 
that is like a wasted opportunity there but it would have been bootstrap paradox because there would have been no og hulk saying yes it's this hulk remembering that he said yes that's exactly what happened with harry and the petronas charm right yeah seeing the petronas charm in the movie was a really great moment for someone who's not read the book that's like a wow moment with respect to time travel hmm so let me ask you this in um, avengers is it a closed loop i haven't seen the movie so that's why i'm asking avengers time travel physics are very stupid so they have yeah. infinite timelines okay so it's fine no that's another version of it yes my hmm. question is if it's a closed loop won't it be really boring to see it from someone else's point of view no so your perception of that scene entirely changes that's true but if there are multiple timelines being formed with a minor difference in each, each timeline that makes the viewing interesting let's take hagrid's point of view in all this all he knows is he's crying he thinks bugbeak is going to die bugbeak escapes story over <laughs> i don't think there is like a lot of interesting stuff going on for him let's say he has like multiple timelines of it there's a version with him where bugbeak does not escape then we see hagrid when there's a version where bugbeak does escape that makes it interesting agree i just think that with a closed loop it might not be a great uh, viewing experience agree <laughs> so as long as the closed loop can be shown in two differing perspectives then it makes it fun mm. you have to watch back to the future 2 to get the fun of it there are a lot of work of fiction where time travel is the main thing in those cases it is very interesting to play around with the timeline see it from different perspectives and everything but in harry potter it's only happening in book 3 and the time travel bit is just a plot line she hasn't given it a lot of thought i'm glad she didn't because we know what happened when she gave a lot of thought to time travel <laughs> to be fair she had the idea she didn't really write it it's her story but somebody else wrote it which means but she approved no i actually admire her for like recognizing that time travel is like really messy territory and that she shouldn't get into it which is why she like conveniently makes all the time turners go missing in book 5 that's great good on <laughs> her for recognizing her strengths and sticking to them i'm glad that that did not become the whole focal point of uh, the rest of the books because then the solution would always be time travel no matter what the problem is like everything and there would be no emotional uh, growth because there'd be like time travel yeah i agree to both so one uh, jk rowling is not really the best when it comes to consistency across a long time she makes small minor errors here and there the order in which james and lily were killed when the first uh, release of the fourth book happened was incorrect like priora and candidum is supposed to bring them in reverse right so lily was should be the first one and then it should be james but it was actually the other way around they had to correct it after like a few published uh, copies were out I actually have a copy which says James came first and not Lily. Oh, interesting. She forgets about things easily. Yeah. And she's admitted it in interviews also, I guess. I have tried many times to do the math for when Gryffindor last won the Quidditch Cup before Harry joined the team. So I feel you. <laughs> and the the worst is the math. So according to whatever basic math we can do and extrapolate, there are only two eighty students in Hogwarts. You wouldn't know that looking at the movies, by the way. The number of people in Harry's year, especially in Prisoner of Azkaban, in that defense against the Dark Arts class was astounding. <laughs> Kept trying to figure out if there are so many people in Harry's year around, how did they fit all the students in the Great Hall? So many questions. Two eighty is the strength of the entire school projections. 
Interestingly, last time I, when we were discussing this, we were talking about how there's a possibility that Hermione could have gone back in time and actually met her past self. But because she knew that time travel exists in this world, she wouldn't have minded a lot. I think one thing we missed discussing is how much stress she would have been under because of time travel. It's not just using that extra hour cram information, but it's also stretching her day constantly. For example, just like she goes back in time to take the classes, she might have gone back in time to do some revisions. I just wonder how much of the stress that she comes under really comes because of the time travel and how McGonagall thought that was a good idea anyway. I think all of the stress that Hermione is under comes from the time travel. All might be too much because she's also under stress because of Sirius Crookshanks. Yeah, but the time travel is what she's using to like make up for the hours she's losing out on because of all these other stresses. For every hour she spends worrying about why Crookshanks hates scabbers. And generally I think more than these two, her stress in third book would be because the strained friendship yeah. between the three of them because of scabbers and Crookshanks. That is something I want to talk about when we talk about the movie. So like Prashanthi mentioned, there are other works of fiction where the entire plot premise is focused around time travel itself. You have like butterfly effect or uh, source code and stuff like that. But in the Harry Potter series and in book 3 specifically, time travel is like what two chapters worth of action and it's not really the focal point. It's it's something that they show to wrap up some loose ends. For me, if you look at the first book, it's a universe creating book. It expands on what is magic, what is the magical universe about and all that and it sets that precedence. The second book is actually a murder mystery and like a whodunit and like, it's like a thriller genre. And to be honest, the book is actually very boring till the last five chapters. They've just packed all the action to the last. Of course, there is the awesome death day party. <laughs> Are you kidding me? There's a giant snake on the loose no. killing people. <laughs> it's just like cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Like you don't mm. get to see anything uh, progress. Mm. If they had gotten like incremental clues on who the person is between each killing, I would have taken that as a good way to advance the plot. But it's actually uh, like one kill after the other. And the only fun part is it's not a kill, it's petrification because they didn't look at the eyes directly. And even that they don't figure out then. They figure out only in the end. Yeah, but I think they lay a lot of groundwork for Polyjuice Potion, which becomes really important later on. Yes, the reason why I like reading the third book so much is the story is gripping from start to finish. Like there is no boring part of the third. It deals with multiple parallel plot points and threads happening simultaneously and all intertwining at the end. So that's a narrative structure that I don't think the previous two books had. I think this is more of a mystery than uh, the second book. There are not just one, there are so many mysteries. And almost all of them end in a very satisfying way. And they're not just mysteries. Like there are things that you don't even uh, assume are mysteries. Like? Peter being seen on the map. That only happens in the movie, no? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the firebolt. Identity yeah. of the sender of the firebolt. It's a non-mystery. Like <laughs> once the firebolt comes back, Harry, I don't think anybody was sitting around thinking, I wonder who it was. <laughs> oh. Apart from Hermione. Of course. Like Body mentioned, though one of the main stresses that Hermione goes through in this book is because of time travel, the second one is definitely because of her strained friendship with Harry and Ron. Initially, in the first two books, their friendship is mainly circumstantial and because of the adventures they go through together and because of what they face together. 
in this book they consciously try to put aside a lot of the differences they face one is the problem crookshanks has with scabbers and the second one is how hermione thinks firebolt is not safe harry and ron up until this book have a very short term lens on it but hagrid teaches them to view friendship as a long term thing and this is a very important point of growth for both harry and ron and also a little bit for hermione because she also learns to accept that there are some things that she will not be able to control in her own life or harry's life this book therefore is a big turning point for for all three of them because they choose to be friends knowing the flaws of each other very well at this point as opposed to book 1 where they just become friends because they took down a troll together after not being able to stand each other exactly i sort of have a sub point i definitely think that one of the major themes of the story is friendship and bravery as hermione says in book 1 right there are more important things and this is shown to us in both the major and minor arcs in the storyline the major arc being the story of the marauders and what happened there and the minor arc being the trio's fight about a rat and a broomstick in fact there is a lot of strife in their lives simply because of the way that different people involved in these storylines prize these particular qualities on one hand you have sirius to whom friendship and loyalty mean more than anything else in fact once he realizes that what he did was was a mistake and that it has cost him people he's who are very dear to him he actually just gives in and he doesn't even like attempt to clear his name or fight for himself and on the other hand you have peter pettigrew who betrayed his closest friends like you said hermione sort of chooses the truth she chooses the truth over their friendship because of which she suffers and at the end of the book i'd like to think both ron and hermione learned a lesson about their fight a lesson that ron like <laughs> promptly forgets by the next book itself but harry and ron actually when i was thinking about this particular theme i also realized that harry and ron for all their high ground about friendship actually forget to help hagrid it's hermione who remembers and helps him prepare for the trial i was a little surprised at how much of this was glossed over in the movie it's as though this particular theme didn't strike scriptwriter as important enough to be showcased in the movie a lot of the plot details we just discussed over the last few minutes are completely glossed over i think that's because it's mostly character development and has very less to do with the story moving forward i'd also like Sad. to add that Uh, in general if you look at both of them ron and harry are not really qualified to help hagrid in a case academic wise or you know general street smarts wise so hermione taking the lead is nothing surprising i think there are parts mentioned where you know uh, they go through some books and like the suggestions they give are really stupid <laughs> That's like, initially, yeah. No, no. They also go through the books after they reconcile. No, all three of them are actually kind of used to going to the library and doing a lot of research. That's not new. Uh, Hermione is used to taking the lead, but in this case, they completely forget. If you are in a court case, and if you could choose one person to help you to get <laughs> out of it, why would you choose Ron or Harry? You wouldn't, but it's the fact that they promised and they forgot it. Yeah. and i think that's a characteristic trait of both of them they are at the end of the day slightly responsible kids yeah the thing is though hermione comes across as someone who's much more mature i think she is mature in certain things i would still call hermione a responsible kid that's all yeah 
and like aishura just said i don't know if she took any lessons from sirius i hope that she did but she kind of learns an important thing from him which is that sometimes you have to put your friends above everyone else for example when the confrontation between sirius and pettigrew happens in fact even lupin also says that you should have died rather than betraying them and that's an important lesson for hermione to learn because at the end of the day harry has that inbuilt in him maybe because it's it's coming from his parents or something he has that savior complex and he also has the loyalty inbuilt but that's something hermione has to consciously learn and i do think that it has affected her in ways that we see in the future even ron has it inbuilt kind of because as soon as they go into the shack Ron's like if you're going to kill Harry you're going to kill me first. That's so brave and so loyal and that's not something Hermione would ever say right away. It was also so cut from the movie and changed. I know I was just going to say that that when I watched the movie I was very upset at how many things got redistributed. There's actually an entire thread somewhere Tumblr or something where there's a list of scenes which in the book are actually Ron's. But in the movie they would have made Ron one uh, bumbling idiot and given those scenes to Hermione. Seriously. There is also the scene that we hate in uh, Snape's classroom page 394 scene. Oh god. Yes. That is the second time you've spoken out of turn, Miss Granger. Are you incapable of restraining yourself or do you take pride in being an insufferable know-it-all? He's got a point, you know. A place where in the book we see Ron being so loyal and Ron who told Hermione she was a know-it-all at least twice a week said loudly you asked us a question and she knows the answer why ask if you don't want to be told to be honest between the two comebacks you shouldn't have asked that if you didn't want the answer is a much better comeback and much funnier thing to show on screen than this i agree i'll never understand the people who made that decision One more thing I wanted to talk about is how symbolic the transformations are. Sirius turns into a dog which is the most loyal of all animals and Pettigrew turns into a rat which is like the most un- untrustworthy thing ever. I never really thought about that. But what does Lupin turning into a werewolf signify? Disease. I don't think that's a conscious choice she could really take. And Animagus chooses to turn into a particular animal, I mm. think. And Lupin does not have a choice. There was even one thing I read about about James turning into a stag. On the one hand, a stag is brave, but it also stands for a bit of toxic masculinity, which we kind of see in the later book. So that was also a very appropriate thing to to show. Speaking of Lupin, one of the themes that I noted particularly about this book because this is where we start seeing it properly in the Harry Potter universe is the injustice in the magical world you think with magic at hand the wizarding world would be some kind of utopia but it's pretty much just a reflection of the muggle universe with different types of isms uh, yeah. you have speciesism instead of racism or classism you have classism also as we see with the malfoys and the weasleys the weasleys are known as blood traitors so not because they're not pure blood they still are pure blood but they're just sympathetic with not pure blood people you have prejudice you have a weak legal system you have bribery you have a minister of magic who's more concerned with showing a good front to the public than trying to figure out what is actually right or wrong and it's a good place i think to introduce all of these different things because this is after all a book in transition it's going from a children's book series to a slightly more for adults slash young adult series and It's a good book for Harry to start personally experience some of the injustices that make up the wizarding world at large. 
now does he do anything about those injustices later not really he's not really a cause bearer but some of the ways in which he reacts to these things that he sees around him and the attitude he brings from the muggle world are what actually set him apart and become part of his strengths i'm of course referring to dobby in this book right from the beginning we see many things happening that make harry realize that adults are not infallible at all in fact they are filled with more prejudice than he would even expect because it starts with the introduction of aunt marge who is obsessed about harry's parentage his blood and then we see the whole thing with buckbeak where all the three of them can literally see that lucius is using his power to do something that's unfair and that he should not be allowed to do and then we come across serious black's character we see that the criminal justice system in in this world is so flawed that they had locked up an innocent person in askaban for 12 years and then later we also see how fudge is so obsessed with what people think of him then actually doing the right thing at this point even if harry doesn't consciously make any observations it's very clear that he is not trusting authorities after this point i think it's really driven home to him in book 5 that he shouldn't trust authority in fact the only adult that harry hermione and ron can actually trust in this whole series so far has been dumbledore he usually meets harry only at the end of the book to give all these awesome quotable quotes why not hagrid hagrid has been proven untrustworthy in book 1 unreliable yes yeah hagrid does give good eq advice like when he talks to harry and ron about how they're reading hermione that's good advice that nobody else in their lives gives them but he also uh <laughs> he also bought a dragon's so, egg <laughs> from someone in a bar no between dumbledore and hagrid who betrays harry's trust knowingly that's why i said so far because so far dumbledore only appears in the end and gives all these awesome quotes their complicated relationship starts around book 5 only right at the end of the day almost all the adults in fact betray harry's trust in one way or the other and it's quite sad actually the two most wholesome beings in harry potter are not human like hedwig and dobby <laughs> yeah correct so speaking of quotable quotes though something that dumbledore says that has always stuck with me is this line the consequences of our actions are always so complicated so diverse that predicting the future is a very difficult business indeed of course this is closely tied to the whole time travel bit that we were talking about but he says this specifically when harry regrets saving petigrew's life because at this point he makes the connection that voldemort's servant that's going to bring back voldemort is petigrew he would have died if not for harry and it's obvious that harry is feeling guilty now whatever happens in the next book is because of harry so this is clearly something that dumbledore grasps though he talks about how harry has sent voldemort someone who is in debt to harry and that's going to somehow help him and obviously not a lot of us will have that level of foresight into these things but i do think that at the end of the day doing the right thing at that moment is going to be beneficial to you in the long run and this is what i understand from dumbledore's point what do you guys think the advanced version of this quote 
which is... It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. The overarching theme here is that you can have your pieceism or blood status and all that, but those are really not relevant because at the end of the day, what you choose to do and the actions define who you are. Yeah. You could have been born good but do bad things. You could be born bad and do good things and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. In fact, Harry would have been a very different character if he had gone ahead and let Sirius kill Pettigrew. Even though Sirius and Lupin had a very legit reason to kill Pettigrew and Harry himself wanted to kill Sirius when he thought Sirius was the one who betrayed James in the first place. When he had to confront that, when he had to see that someone who is actually in many ways more disgusting than Sirius who has to go under this punishment, he does the right thing. And that makes Harry who he is. I also think it's a matter of circumstance, right? Harry understands that Peter is a character who's generally been either bullied or scared or stuff like that. So, he probably rationalizes it as Peter being coerced and, you know, strong-armed into doing this and eventually turning over to the dark side. But so far, the picture that has been painted about Sirius is that he's a cold-blooded, uh, ruthless killer. The motivation or the rationale of why in Harry's mind a Sirius killed his parents versus Peter killing his parents are very different. I don't know if Harry really thought Pettigrew was bullied and he's a pitiful character. But I do think that Harry understands brave people more easily than cowards. And Pettigrew's a coward. Killing someone like that is definitely beneath him. At that point, he just says his father wouldn't have wanted his friends to be punished or become killers because of uh, Pettigrew. But I do think that it doesn't seem to him like a fair fight. In fact, when he suggests time travel, Dumbledore says that Harry and Hermione will be saving two innocent lives. But that day, the three of them end up saving three lives. And one is Pettigrew. Yeah, but he couldn't be like two innocent, one guilty. (laughs) The fun fact here is that of all the seven books, it's the only book without a death. Every book ends with a death. Ends with a death. What happens in the second book though? The basilisk dies. Basilisk dies? (laughs) It's still a death. (laughs) Don't be uh, discriminatory against creatures. (laughs) Yeah. I did not expect that. No, even Tom Riddle's memory dies. If you want to be like, I will consider only deaths of people, Tom Riddle's memory dies. Yeah, that's one-eighth of a life. Yeah. No, death of any life. Yes, I get that. The only supposed death in third book is Wormtail. Yeah. And he is alive. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, this is like that corona report. (laughs) Number of deaths, minus one. So, person is coming back alive. It's very funny because this is like the darkest in the series in many ways. Whether it's talking about depression through Dementors. Harry having to live through his parents' death again and again. It's quite dark, especially for someone who's just 13, who's seen a lot, who's seen worse things in life. But it's still, there's like personification of every evil thing that has ever happened to him, constantly staring at him. So it's quite dark, but it doesn't have death. This is kind of the monsters book, right? The Defense Against the Dark Arts class focuses on dark monsters. We have care of magical creatures. Lupin is a werewolf. The basilisk could have actually fit into this book really well, but <laughs> it would have made a really awkward plot element, I think. It would have been like Spider-Man 3, I think. Bunch up all the villains in one movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a nice observation. We see so many new creatures in this in this book. And it's nice to see how the magical community interacts with these creatures, whether it's positive or negative. It's like Sirius says in the fourth book, 
if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. Here we see multiple interactions where animals and just generally lives that do not have a voice are being treated in a very discriminatory way. I mean, we already got to see how something with a voice gets treated. That's not a wizard gets treated in the previous book. This book could be considered to be about like werewolfism, right? We see Lupin as someone that everybody adores. Like students love him and Harry particularly looks up to him so much. But the minute that everybody finds out he's a werewolf and we see this in Ron, the way that he flinches when he finds out that Lupin is a werewolf. We see the entire wizarding world's attitude towards werewolves. And this isn't something that Lupin chose. He was bitten against his will as a child. That is still not something that engenders any kind of sympathy from anybody. Who gets bitten willfully? Imagine, if you will, the rare child who is being a werewolf sounds very cool, goes in search of a werewolf and like willfully gets bitten. It was opposed to someone who got bitten because Greyback held a grudge against his dad. Lupin has done nothing to earn the life that he has been given. And it's really unfair that the werewolf thing, no matter where he goes, what he tries to do, keeps coming back. At the end of the book, we are so confused about who's more of a tragedy, Lupin or Sirius. Yeah. Who do you vote for? <laughs> One is an escaped serial murderer. The other is a werewolf. Yeah. It's not like Lupin really had any kind of freedom, even if he stayed out of Azkaban. Their lives are both are similarly tragic. Lupin has no freedom even though he's not in a prison. Sirius has no freedom because he should be in a prison. <laughs> Sirius, Sirius cannot be free even if he's out of the prison because all this while and even after this he's going to blame himself for the death of James and Lily. I recently read a post about how Neville is the bravest character and all that or the most uh, loyal character because uh, as of book 5 to Neville, Sirius is still a wanted killer. And he still chooses to go help just because Harry called him. Oh, oh that's God. so true. That is so true. I never thought about it. <laughs> so Harry just calls him and says, hey, I, I want to save a killer because he's my friend. And he just goes with him. I agree. So that, that's the level of friendship and loyalty that Neville stands for. I think everybody who followed Harry to the Department of Ministries in book 5 are super brave and do not get enough credit for how much trouble they got themselves into. They had no idea what was going to happen, but they still went. I don't know if you guys follow these random uh, Instagram pages and you know, Tumblr pages where there are these one paragraph, two paragraph stories of Harry Potter stuff uh, and all that. Right? Oh, yeah. So there's an amazing post about uh, fudge. So basically, the, the story is like uh, you're in primary school and the president comes to you and talks to you about all this. And then he says hi. He drops in. The next year, he visits another teacher or something <laughs> and he takes the teacher away. So, looking at Fudge from Harry's perspective makes it so weird because why on earth would the Prime Minister do these things? <laughs> I know, I, I've seen this post. And like the third book is the best. The Prime Minister is waiting for you at a restaurant where you didn't tell him you were going to be. Well, Harry is pretty special though. He's a okay, symbol. forget Harry. Imagine looking at it from the eyes of like some other character in the universe. Let's even go for like B.E.M. or Faye or somebody else from the movies, right? What would it be like to them? The Prime Minister is having ice cream with a fellow student. It's really funny that he came to the execution of Buckbeak. <laughs> yeah. That is the really weird thing that I saw. He's the Prime Minister. He can't even pardon Buckbeak. He doesn't want to. Yeah. It's not that he can't. He doesn't he want didn't. to, yeah. 
let's say you have all the power in the world and an animal is going to get slaughtered i think you would go and try to stop it again choices make who you are we are all people who care about animals fudge doesn't fudge cares more about whatever lucius malfoy brings to the table money mm-hmm. power whatever so yeah. fudge cares about his image to the public between the third and fifth books i think we see a lot of high school bullying how good people are perceived how bad people are perceived and you know the sins of their past and all that we've always heard about james and sirius as like good guys yeah. but only when fifth book uh, we see that they're absolute dicks so <laughs> that the whole image of james being this infallible saint to james being this egoistic brat mm. that's something that you don't get to see but the way sirius and snape interact with each other throughout the book is so evident like you know the anger in both of them when they talk to each other yeah. forget talking to each other when they even talk about each other you can see that even through marauders map the four insults that come right on the map i think sirius's insult is the most on your face uh thing to snip yeah i think we made this observation when we were discussing their interaction in the shack they actually don't say much to each other but every word is filled with so much hatred in the last episode we talked about how snape is ready to go to any lengths to make sure that sirius dies at the end of the day he doesn't even care whether sirius is innocent or not sirius is not that much more mature if he were given the chance he would do the same thing I think they bring out the worst in each other. Yeah. So it's funny because Snape's grudge with Sirius is that Sirius tried to get him killed. Yeah. But after Snape knows the entire series of what happened, shouldn't he have a grudge against Wormtail because Wormtail got Lily killed? We don't see enough Snape Wormtail hatred. They interact, but Snape is always five levels above Wormtail, so he treats Wormtail like he's some you know piece of slime. Yeah. This is something that we wondered about as well. How did Snape feel when he found out that Sirius' story was true and that Wormtail was still alive and he's the one to betray? No, but how is it finding it out? No. He was there at the scene. What? What do you mean? No, I'm saying wouldn't have Snape known all this happened because Snape was there when Voldemort went to kill these people. Ah, that is something we discussed as well. We are not really sure if Snape ever it's knew. Not, it's never mentioned, but given that... Snape is supposed to be like the inside agent for both Voldemort and Dumbledore. Is this something that Snape would know from either sides? So that's exactly what we spoke about. We thought that in spite of everything we know, there are things that Voldemort never confided to Snape and Wormtail being a double agent is one of it. And we also spoke about how Snape's animosity towards Sirius and James comes from the fact that they led lily to her death they were bullies and yeah. lily died he does consider wormtail to be like five rungs below all that hatred because if james hadn't been there none of this would have happened i think that's the way he views it and it's mostly transference of guilt because more than james or wormtail or even sirius it's snape that brings death on lily and yeah. he just wants to share the guilt because it's too much for him to bear Speaking of James and Lily though even though there are no deaths actually in this book there's a lot of talk about dead people <laughs> like i said harry has had to relive his parents's death over and over in this uh, particular book and he's also had to come to terms with the betrayal that led to their death directly 
it's like some of the mystery around their death is being cleared at the same time he has to interact with death in new ways because right from when he was 1 year old he's kind of one over death multiple times whether it's voldemort's curse voldemort coming back then the showdown with the basilisk he's come out as a victor in many ways in many ways he has actually cheated death even in this book when we look at the grim which is a symbol of death supposedly turns out to be harry's godfather which is so ironic that itself is trying to protect harry that's the reason he does not have to fear death or anything for that matter and that's the reason he fears fear itself because he has had multiple interactions and he's exhausted his fear for death and that's a very different kind of hero than other kind of fantasies that i've read there should be a final destination movie with harry <laughs> this reminds me of the story of the three brothers from tales of beetle the bard i think the youngest brother who is supposed to be harry greets death as an old friend when it is time to go and by your analogy it makes total sense harry is so familiar with death in the sixth book dumbledore talks about how voldemort is afraid of dead things voldemort is afraid of the people he's killed and dumbledore and harry uh, do not have that fear mainly because the people that are dead are people that they loved that's the very important distinction between harry and voldemort which is that they don't see death as the end of things or as the defeat they see it as a part of life especially for harry the other overarching theme with respect to time juxtaposing the past like the marauders versus the current gen of the friends in hogwarts and all that there is also a underlying theme of foreshadowing that is introduced to us in the form of divination which later ends with a prophecy from trelawney if you look at all the funny joke prophecies that harry and ron make at some point they all come true but you know i always assume that was meant to be a deliberate joke it is but you don't understand it till later right ah when you are reading the book they're just funny because it seems abysmal but at the end of the series when you look back at it now it it all makes sense yeah but i always enjoyed ron in divination class i actually really missed the fact that the movie had excellent jokes for ron in divination and they totally like just didn't use any of them i think the fourth book has like the best predictions mm. like ron actually predicts the entire triwizard tournament he talks about burns the dragon uh, egg yeah he talks about drowning and losing a prized position yes. which is the second task yeah. and uh, being betrayed by a person that is moody the yeah. third task yeah right uh, you've got a wonky sort of cross he said consulting unfogging the future that means you're going to have trials and suffering sorry about that uh, but there's a thing that could be the sun hang on that means great happiness so you're going to suffer but be very happy this is exactly the end of the third book where you know it's it's not really a victory but it's a victory like harry is happy that sirius is technically free but uh, he's also sad that he can't move in with him and all that it's the end of the series also in a way there's a blob a bit like a bowler hat he said maybe you're going to work for the ministry of magic he turned the teacup the other way up but this way it looks more like an acorn what's that he scanned his copy of unfogging the future a windfall unexpected gold excellent you can lend me some which is again uh, what ends up happening at the end of the I mean, post end of the series there is also a bit about an acorn meaning uh, a windfall uh, unexpected gold 
So, mm. and he'll say, excellent, you can lend me some. If you were to extrapolate it, he technically lends his family some and he lends Fred and George some, which Ron ends up joining anyway. Weasley Wizarding Visas. Wow. So, technically, wow. uh, Harry is like the angel investor for uh, Weasley's Wizarding Visas. And he technically did lend Ron some money. And he got that money unexpectedly because he won the Triwizard Tournament. Hmm. Interesting. So, the whole plot of divination being a scam and divination being, you know, real. It is clearly shown when it is meant as a joke, ends up happening true. When it is meant to be serious, but it is actually comedy. And to be honest, Ron really makes a lot of jokes that make sense. Yeah. <laughs> the best quote from second book is, I wouldn't mind knowing how Riddle got an award for special services to Hogwarts either. Could have been anything, said Ron. Maybe he got 30 OWLs or saved a teacher from the giant squid. Maybe he murdered Myrtle. That would have done everyone a favour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. <laughs> yeah. It's excellent foreshadowing, actually. Yeah. So Ron is amazing at these, you know, random uh, pieces of predictions. I really think this is an excellent segue to the movie. There are so many things to be upset about movie Ron. I feel like all his best lines were taken away from him. His moment of bravery in the Shrieking Shack is taken away from him. His fight with Hermione is taken away from him. In fact, it's reduced to some kind of cute, like, will they, won't they floaty fight. <laughs> Hermione and Ron have no kind of feelings for each other in the book. But this whole romantic subplot happens in the movie. No, no, there is a scene in the third book. It's, it's a very funnily described scene. So, I think it's after they reconcile, Hermione will be complaining about some uh, her homework or studies or something like that. Ron will say, no, you don't have to do it alone. We'll also help you. For which Hermione will start crying and hug him or something like that. So, Ron will feel awkward and not know what to do. So, he'll pat her on her head or something like that. I don't know if that's romantic. Ron is the only person who notices that Hermione has an impossible schedule. If that isn't romantic, I don't know what is. I think Ron is definitely a better friend and he has more time to give both Harry and Hermione. He cares about both of them and he also observes them better than Harry can ever do. That also is indicated in a lot of the Christmas and birthday presents that Ron gives them as opposed to the other two giving the other two. Yeah, Hermione gives the worst Christmas presents. Does Harry even give presents much... Every year presents are mentioned, Harry does give Ron something. We don't know the backstory behind it. But all the gifts that Harry gets, we get the backstory of. We in fact don't even know when Harry orders these gifts. When he gift wraps them. If he gift, ra- gift wraps them and doesn't just like... Does he even know how to? Harry is quite bad at all that. I mean, for someone who with his dramatic past, expressing even that level of emotion is probably hard. So, I'll try to give him some credit. For someone whose entire world was a cupboard, imagine how limited his yeah. worldview would be. Like, I'm surprised he even knows, like, there's a concept called giving gifts. Of course he does. Dudley gets gifts. He's surprisingly well-adjusted for someone who grew up in a cupboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's nature versus nurture debate, right? I think Harry is a very clear case of nature. <laughs> because nurture was just horrible. Non-existent, in fact. Actually, this movie is also totally supportive of nature simply because it shows us that Harry's Patronus is a stag like his father's animagus form. And I really like the the movie 
for the sake of pace and time cut a huge chunk of the conversations in the shrieking shack out serious explaining himself like lupin's back story us figuring out like how peter pettigrew fits in and then harry accepting serious and all of those things are just like gone sacrificed for like all of these things that i like the moment where serious says goodbye to harry and harry thinks that after he rescues serious he'll just like run away with him and just not come back to hogwarts and live the wildlife types thing and serious gets the line from dumbledore that you mentioned earlier that the ones we loved never leave us and it's such a great moment at that point and i think that's what really cements jk rowling stand on this as well that she takes nature over nurture Yeah. Obviously there are so many things that the movie cut out but in spite of it I do like the movie a lot because it is the most well made movie in the whole franchise. For one it's not dark all the time which is what most of the Harry Potter movies are. It's just dark. I think it's a very beautifully shot movie and this book is very special because of the amount of foreshadowing it does and though they cannot possibly show all of it there are many motives that kind of come again and again they kind of act like foreshadowing for example time by the end of the movie the whole time travel episode plays out really well and there is this ticking time thing going on in the background but throughout the movie we actually see the giant clock in hogwarts being shown again and again harry is framed against it and then we see many times where the clock strikes one or something and birds are flying away whether it's that or even even the shrieking shack we know that the climax happens there and we know that this giant violent tree is on top of it but in the book we actually don't see it being mentioned at all but in the movie it becomes a motif that's the way in which the passage of seasons are shown we see the warping willow in autumn we see the warping willow in winter so it's very interesting because these are things that you need to remember at the point of the climax and sometimes you might not understand what's happening if you see a giant tree flailing suddenly this hint kind of helps us make the connection to the second movie i really like the way this movie has been made especially compared to the first two because first two movies are kind of dry because they have taken the book and completely turned it into a movie without really changing a lot without taking advantage of the cinematic medium whereas in this i think alfonso curon actually took a little too much advantage of it and that's why people hate it <laughs> I was going to say that I think you described exactly why Body likes the first two movies. <laughs> I like the first two movies because they stay true to the book. See, that makes for a very boring viewing to me. As long as things are not cut out, I'm completely happy with it. <laughs> See, I'm the first person to enjoy commercial movies. So if you want to make movies and add on top of that, I'm all for it. But don't cut out the interesting parts from it. My problem with that is I really do think that that makes the second movie really boring. I think they had the opportunity to make it so much more interesting because of the medium but they didn't imagine if they hadn't cut out death day party would you have enjoyed the movie <laughs> I think the second book if it were meant for a young adult audience it could have been a proper horror thriller movie movies with jump scares in them I think they could have still done it to some extent the director was not a really visual director I would say it, it's a feel good kind of a director Yeah. I mean the visuals that you see would be more of landscapes of the scenery and the, you know the the grounds yeah. the castle yeah. the great hall stuff that are inconsequential. In fact technically 
Alfonso Cuarón added a lot of geographical locations to the whole series. People thank him a lot mm. for that. I mean, even other directors do that. Whether it's that bridge near the lake, Harry and Lupin have that conversation about when they can take the classes and everything. I think he just expanded the universe a little bit, though it did not remain faithful too much to the book. I do enjoy that there's more space for them to do things. I agree with you. I saw Prisoner of Azkaban for the first time and hated it for the most inconsequential reasons. <laughs> they don't wear robes in the movie. Why are they wearing jeans? In the first part when he's hanging out with the Dursleys, Harry like technically screws up the whole thing in one night and I was like why isn't it a week like it's represented where's the Quidditch cup? And I was really lost in the details. That's the thing right there are inconsequential things and there are actually consequential things. Like would being cut out of atrocity to me. Like, I enjoyed the book because of uh, Gryffindor winning the cup after so long, you know, Wood being like a madman and all that. That is character development. That is a piece of Harry's school life that I would have enjoyed if I were there. So, that being cut out is something that I didn't like. Stuff like you said, you know, that you know, one day, one week, those are inconsequential. I never really bothered about those. But those were the things that I was hyper-focused on. Mostly the clothes really bothered me that they were not wearing robes. Because the first two movies are such sticklers... for that and the third movie just freestyled with the rope thing like crazy <laughs> i actually like that because they are becoming more of individuals than just like a pack of children one of the problems for me with that is that we know that in the wizarding world the adult wizards are not very comfortable dressing as muggles because they don't have experience wearing muggle clothing but if all the kids at hogwarts are running around in jeans what is the problem when they become adults <laughs> Again like I said I'm nitpicker max when it comes to these things the fact that spells have two words in them what is lumos maxima what happened to just lumos maybe there's a lumos minima first of all why is he performing magic outside the school exactly it is so inconsistent because later on when he meets the minister of uh, magic he says are you here to arrest me because i performed underage magic i know it's illegal to perform underage magic if you knew that why are you performing magic in your bed huh why It's the first 10 minutes get it right. So what I realized while watching the movie this time is that the person that I really don't like is the scriptwriter. <laughs> Not Alfonso Cuarón. I like some of the choices the scriptwriter made. Uh I like how he distributed some of Dumbledore's lines to like Lupin, to Sirius. I like how they have sort of constructed the uh, climax of the book. I think they took what is essentially a lot of standing around and talking to each other and did their best to turn it into a jam packed action sequence that actually sort of works like when you're watching it just it just flows together which is to both Alfonso Cuarón's credit and the scriptwriter's credit three major parts got cut out which i really disliked which was the quidditch team the whole marauders knowing each other who they were that itself is completely like skewed they don't even talk to us or tell us the world that existed before the movie story is so blah like it it's not as exciting as the actual story given in the book this is a good movie for people to watch if they're trying to get into harry potter simply because it makes if you are trying to be really like reductive you could be like this is just a world where people wave around their wands and say funny words type thing but this movie takes a children's book seriously and makes it into a movie like it's a serious movie but it does nothing to add to the mythology of harry potter Overall, forget the third movie. The biggest crime that the movies did was not including Peeves. Peeves is made for movies. He is that comic relief character. And in the third movie specifically, they cut out Sir Cadogan. Yeah. 
I'll tell you what I really like about the movie. One uh, really fine touch that the movie added, again, foreshadowing plot point or element, is when Harry is in the leaky cauldron, there is a person sitting with a self-stirring cup and reading a brief history of time. So, call back for people who know the story and it's like fun foreshadowing for people who don't. One thing that the movie does that no other books have done is the shrunken head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the night bus is just awesome. Phenomenal. <laughs> the only character similar to the shrunken head, which if you can relate to in the books, is the mirror, the leaky cauldron. The mirror that talks to yeah. the Harry. So that is probably the best character equivalent for that shrunken head. Even the driver, Ern. <laughs> Ern is there in the books also, but he doesn't have as much character as the movies. In just a few scenes, Stan... Uh, the shrunken head and Oni acquire so much character that you want to see more of them. Uh, shrunken head beats everything and stuff. I also love the Bogart scene. It's visually yes. appealing. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's choreographed. It's choreographed well. The music, the music in this movie is very good. Everything that they've used, really, really good stuff. Like even if it's just playing in the background, Lupin always has music on whenever he's doing something. So everything they've picked sort of fits Lupin also. It's a very big band style. It's a little old school. It's really nice stuff. I really miss the depth that the revelation of the Marauders would have brought to the Shrieking Shack scene. I do like the scene in itself. As soon as Lupin comes in, they exchange very few words before Lupin helps him up. Because Lupin has already seen Pettigrew walking around the castle through the Marauders map. So I think by the time he gets to the shack itself in the movie, he's convinced that Sirius is innocent. The very few lines that they exchange with Snape, the lines are kind of changed. But everything kind of makes sense. And I like how unstable the whole Shrieking Shack scene is. It makes you feel very uneasy. Did it feel like a ship to you guys? It sort of like moves yeah. from side to side. Yeah. It is an abridged version, which is essential because you cannot show the whole thing. But I think they did a good job showing some depth. And I thought the yeah. actors were so good in that particular scene, like I disliked the third movie because of Gary Oldman, because he's not my serious. I really love Prisoner of Azkaban. It was my favorite book as a kid. It still continues to be my favorite book. So when they cast Sirius and I know him to be like a wasted handsome, I expected someone really handsome. <laughs> and Gary Oldman did not fit the bill. But he's such a good actor in a scene with a character that he knows from before. He was able to convey the depth of feeling that was missing from the dialogue in just a few words. Whatever injustice that they meted out in the 394 scene, they kind of try to compensate by making Snape the protector of the trio when uh, Lupin turns into the werewolf because that's such a great scene. And if you had not believed so far if Snape was a good guy, at that point you would have believed because it's a very dangerous position. He's trying to protect someone he obviously hates. That scene with Alan Rickman, Gary Oldman... And I forget Lupin's actor's name. Lupin, obviously, Lupin's casting is also so good. I read that one of the problems they had in the movie was that Alan Rickman as Snape is a lot older than Snape mm. would have been if he had to be age-appropriately cast. So they were mm. forced to pick his contemporaries as older people, which is why... I, Everyone got aged up. Yeah, which is why I think mm. they recast James and Lily from the first two movies as well. There's a different James and Lily in this one. But actually, if you look at the James and Lily, the first two, they look even older. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't understand that recasting either. And I thought they picked the perfect contemporaries for Snape. I have no trouble believing that Lupin, Sirius and Snape went to school together. Yeah, they all look the same age. But the problem is, 
their age is supposed to be what some 30s because what 12 years 17 plus 12 that's 29 that's not even 30 assuming that there was a couple of years between them having kids and all yeah so what do you mean 17 plus 12 18 plus 12 actually it happened like in a year really yeah wow very young parents yeah they're supposed to be early 30s only they look like they're some 50s but because of alan rickman's casting i know for me the biggest thing that my mind cannot fathom is serious black and commissioner gordon are the same people <laughs> commissioner gordon is an old guy <laughs> yeah yeah have you seen the old dracula i'm so shocked no okay. uh and thankfully serious black and the old dracula are the same guy i'll send you guys a picture later <laughs> <laughs> it didn't feel like serious had to do much to be perceived as the main villain for most of the movie on par with someone like voldemort <laughs> I think the actor just sold it yeah. so well. And we come to my favorite topic, Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have new Dumbledore, no? I think I know the answer with Body. What do you think? Michael Gambon is Dumbledore? They're very different characters. So, after mm. seeing Richard Harris, it's very hard to take anybody else seriously as Dumbledore. Okay. Especially a Dumbledore who will tie up his beard <laughs> with rubber bands. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Body is kindred spirit. <laughs> he practically looks like a hobo i think it's no big deal because we know that dumbledore is a little eccentric he can be eccentric the dumbledore in book 1 and book 2 has one you know finesse and you know uh, sophistication gravitas too much of it because you don't see him being able to get up and fight he looks like one good spell and he'll die no the third movie dumbledore looks like one lazy slob who's not bothered he could have brushed his hair the thing that you keep telling me to do <laughs> he could have done it before he was in the movie <laughs> the whole him being angry and the whole violent dumbledore that doesn't bother me at all it's basically only one scene i just think he's not a very convincing dumbledore that the violent thing really bothers me a lot that scene that's only one scene he's been in like five movies the fourth movie is so terrible in so many ways that scene just doesn't stand out for me at all <laughs> yeah okay for, forget all this. the fourth movie was even more criminal because i can accept third book la they cut out quidditch Okay, there is no Quidditch Cup. They cut the Quidditch World Cup, no? No, no, no. If they cut it also, fine. They will release the snitch and it's over. Yeah. Like, that's all. I don't even know what, how decision. does that even make sense. The way they show the World Cup is the worst. Like, they could have just cut it like the third movie. I think the lighting is truly horrible in the fourth one. Of all the books. Even the World Cup doesn't look exciting. The World Cup looks really bad. I thought that this movie picked its dramatic... action scenes or like comedy scenes or whatever you want to call them really well uh harry unexpectedly getting to like embarrass malfoy and group or with buckbeak or even with the whomping willow the only thing it really changes in canon is that harry actually gets away with humiliating malfoy when harry like throws snow at malfoy and drags him around on the ground they just run away they never see harry so they never report him and the subsequent conversations with snape and lupin happen because harry goes out looking for peter pettigrew on the map not because of this incident i don't think the whomping willow thing with harry and hermione trying to brave its branches to get into the thing i think that was completely unnecessary it was there only to show hermione as a badass and i hated it i thought her upper body strength was phenomenal she deserves it <laughs> Yeah, she just grabbed his shirt. Yeah, and like just tosses him, you know. <laughs> In the book, it's so clear that she is the least athletic because 
whenever they walk a long distance she starts panting without fail that's something that jk rowling mentions here she is hanging on to a flailing branch aiming harry putting him through the hole and all i just hated that they tried to make her so badass and so unreal when hermione punches malfoy all the stress that leads her to break down like that none of it exists in the movie it seems to happen only because they want to show her as someone who's a badass like isn't there also a change where in the book she slaps malfoy and in the movie punches that was unnecessary because a slap would have made more sense i think a slap is much more humiliating more fun to watch a slap is better suited for a cinema than a punch exactly that's what i think too but maybe they had practical difficulties but yeah i just do not like the whole focus on hermione because i think it takes away a lot from her character by making her very two dimensional she knows stuff and she is also so good at like other, these other things she has no vulnerabilities that's just sad to be fair both in the movies and in the books the biggest vulnerability for her would have been her eq in the movie what do you see that shows that the only thing i can remember is when they are fighting about scabbard it's not even a fight in the movie it's just one tiny argument that they have before they see harry in the leaky cauldron no they portray her as a less mature person actually without all the background it just feels like an argument it doesn't feel much more than without that. the background it is normal it doesn't even seem like an argument you guys it seems like some kind of cute <laughs> yeah. floating sequence for straight out of a rom-com <laughs> ron doesn't even look upset about the fact that hermione's cat ate his rat <laughs> rupert grint's face is just funny the default state is funny like every expression he gives is either he is scared or he is surprised so he looks funny at whatever emotion he is trying to show so that takes away a lot from his character in the fourth movie because he's never seen as someone who has deep feelings when he suddenly doesn't want to talk to harry based on the look he has it feels like a very superficial jealousy thing rather than something deep it's a lot of injustice i don't like it they didn't have to group lines together and be like there will be one friend character and that friend character will do everything and the other friend character is there for comedy only it gets worse and worse and worse as the movies go on because every decision that's momentous is either made by harry or hermione by the end no i thought even in this one at the end when harry runs after sirius right to help him simply because of the way the scene is set up i guess it doesn't make sense for hermione to also follow him to the lake but in the books hermione is there throughout she's always helping she's even trying to help cast expecto patronum over there but in the movie harry is the hero he's always diving to save people in many circumstances i kind of get that because when it comes to a hero he needs to be set apart mainly because we don't have his monologue to rely on so giving him separate scenes is the only way to do it they didn't have to do it with the side characters i think one of the problems here is that we don't view them as side characters to us rod and hermione are not just the sidekicks and body was talking about how important uh, quidditch is to harry's growth quidditch is also important to ron's growth and the mm. movies take it away completely i feel quite sad about that is there no quidditch after this in the movies Ron starts playing Quidditch in the fifth book, but fifth movie does not have Quidditch at all. Just fine. I understand why, but I still feel sad that we didn't get to see him. Weasley's arcing is an important piece. Completely agreed. <laughs> 
I feel like you wouldn't really even know Ron if you watch the movies. Definitely not. Forget no Ron. You will have a very bad impression of Ron. Speaking of character growth, I thought that Prisoner of Azkaban movie added a nice dimension to Harry's relationships in terms of showing his friendship even in like plot situations like when they first meet Buckbeak they're all standing together and then the whole class takes a step back when Hagrid says who wants to volunteer and then Ron like stinches forward and like pushes Harry <laughs> to the thing it shows us that they're all interacting like teenagers like the dorm scene and the dorm scene is something i really appreciate the movie for adding here is where i tell you that the scenes that you just mentioned have the most important characters from the movie which is bem <laughs> <laughs> what does bem stand for i noticed him in the movie no it's a name bem is his first name there's some uh, inconsistency there because the third book he was cast as gryffindor kid but in the fourth and subsequent book he is cast as a ravenclaw kid so his name came only much later i think pottermore or something like that or uh, in director's cut special but casting or the screen credits say he is gryffindor boy one for gryffindor boy one he has too many lines and he has too many like plot points he is the person who gives the explanation of what a grim is what's happening who is serious and all that i too was very bothered by <laughs> them so the other two characters are funny because they are the missing people that we don't see in uh, gryffindor the common understanding is that every house has 10 people in every year five boys five girls which is very funny because what if there are more boys and more girls applying like you will cut it and have only five i don't know it's what we see but i i think there might have been more doms correct we don't know so the thing is we see harry ron neville dean and shemus but on the girl side we see only three that is hermione yeah. parvati and lavender so the remaining two are the two girls cast in the third book they are very prominent because they come in these class scenes together as gryffindors which is faye dunbar and kella i watched the movie trying to figure out who faye dunbar is failed <laughs> no idea uh, those things i'm okay fine with because sometimes there's practical difficulty to getting an actor on set so <laughs> i'm fine with that i actually thought daniel radcliffe in the third book is the best he's ever been whether it looks that match with his character in the book the acting in many ways he stops being the kid he's the right age his character is given like enough scope he goes through anger and the betrayal kind of thing there's just more scope for him to do a lot of things i definitely agree about the looks thing <laughs> like when i was 13 14 when the movie came out i was crushing hard on daniel radcliffe Yeah, me too, me too. Especially in that scene in his showdown with Aunt Marge. With the tucked in shirt. Yeah, I love what he's wearing. I love how angry he is. It's very odd to say that now. Since we're bordering into fourth book territory, there's also an interesting thought I had where if you actually look at the prophecy that Trelawney makes, if you remove the timeline part of it, and if you look at the book title of the third book, you can actually rewrite the entire book and the book could have been about bati kaujun he is actually the prisoner of azkaban who escapes he is actually the servant of lord voldemort who makes it happen for voldemort to come back just that it didn't happen on that night that's true wow i never thought about it like that that brings us to the end of today's episode thanks for joining us body thank you for having me on your podcast this is a great experience and i had a lot of fun 
I hope you guys had fun too. It was nice to be discussing Harry Potter all over again. We had a lot of fun because it's usually Aishwarya and I kind of saying the same things because we we completely know each other by now. So bringing in this, this different perspective was really interesting. I'm also really glad that we are kindred spirits in nitpicking certain aspects of the third movie. I can't wait to see the third on of the fourth movie. I can't wait to do it. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us throughout this whole season. I can safely say that this has been our best season. Our discussions have been really interesting for us and we've had some feedback as well. And we hope to continue having these quality discussions in the fourth season as well. So stick with us. If you have any feedback or comments specific to this episode or just the podcast in general, you can visit our website mimblewimble.in or you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and on Instagram as mimblewimblepod. You can also, of course, reach out to us through our personal social media handles. I am Vale Underchim on Twitter and Prashani is underscore M-P-R-A-S. And body is at? At the body soda. Until next time. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? I want to talk to Harry Potter. Harry Potter.